Well, hey, yesterday we looked at the book of Jude, um, and Jude gave us a few things to apply um, as we look to nourish our souls, to feed our souls, to grow in grace, as we use that word sanctification, that the Lord would grow us up in Him. And one of the things that He did from the get-go is He implored us to remember the call. Remember how much we are loved in God the Father by Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And He said we needed to fight for our hearts. We need to fight for the faith and we need to fight for others. Those are three ways in which we are built up in the Christian life. And he's specifically kind of talking about building up the heart. There are a few things that we looked at there. We talked about down the road, Mexico Beach, that picture of the one house that's standing while everything else, it looks like a bomb has gone off. And in what ways, how are we going to be built up so that we can withstand the different seasons of our life and one of the things that the lord gives us we mentioned it yesterday and today we talk about it in more detail is prayer um and one of the common questions i have gotten over the years is how do i pray what do i pray for what does that look like well in colossians 1 so if you have your bibles you can turn to colossians 1 paul does a great job of giving us a way in which we can pray now a little side note another way The Lord's Prayer that some of you are familiar with, you'll see similarities to the structure here. But the Lord's Prayer is another way that guides us and teaches us how to pray. But as this prayer unfolds, we see the genuine love Paul has for these dear saints at Colossae. And it's funny thing is it's a group of believers he's never laid eyes on. But it's a group of believers he treasures because they become a beautiful picture of God's grace. So this passage is Paul setting the stage for a beautiful structure of prayer, teaching us today how we can pray. Um, So as Christians, it's a model for us. Let's pray, and then we'll read this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your sustained mercy. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, we thank you that you invite us to come before you. Father, that we get to sit and interact. And as some this morning maybe even been sitting on the beach as they were praying to you, taking in your creation. Lord God, teach us to pray. Give us hearts that long to be in prayer, to see you change us, to change others, and change communities through prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God. This is Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers, grace to you, And peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that that has come to you. It is bearing fruit, growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace and the truth. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf. And he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason, also since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, 
who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, the first thing that we see is that this gospel prayer begins with grateful hearts. We see that in verses 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Gratitude is flowing from Paul's mouth at the outset of this prayer. Uh, It is so important for us to catch that he does begin with thanksgiving. A healthy, vibrant, sustainable prayer life is always going to begin with thanksgiving. We need to lay our needs and our requests and our feelings at the feet of Jesus as we pray. And we'll talk more about that, but we must begin with thanksgiving. Because as we reflect on God's kindness towards us, it reminds us of how faithful he's been to us. And it turns our hearts towards him and away from ourselves. And it reminds us that God is capable. And it brings this underlying joy as we begin to pray and reflect on God's goodness to us. I had a professor in seminary who would say, name your blessings. Name them one by one. Because that's the thing, as we begin to name them one by one, and again, if we use the board as an illustration, ignore all the wonderful drawings. But if we use the board, we start writing all the ways in which the Lord has blessed us. That is going to build up grateful hearts within us. And then one of the things that Paul's specific about here is he's grateful for these fellow believers. He's grateful for the believers at Colossae. This is one of God's greatest gifts to his people. We are blessed in so many ways as Christians. But one of the greatest ways in which we are blessed is we are blessed with fellow believers. Um, God's being good to us. And for me, this was never more evident than when I went off to college. Um, I went to a Christian high school, had some really good friends, had some great teachers that poured into me, that loved me and cared for me and pointed me to the gospel. And then when I went to college, TCU was only two hours down the road. I didn't know anybody. And I had to show up two weeks early because I was running cross country and track. We had practice at 5.15 in the morning. So I was that weird freshman that was going to bed at like 9.30 every night. So 5.15 rolls around. We go out. It's still dark outside. And we go on a run. And over seven miles, this was the most coarse run I've been on in terms of the speech of the guys around me. These guys were talking about things I really hadn't heard much about before. The profanity was flying off. And then the other thing I realized real quick, my coach, who is now head track coach at the University of Alabama, was at TCU. And the profanity from my coach, obviously being at Christian school, was not used to that either. So this stark contrast where I went from having a whole lot of fellow believers around me to, Lord, where am I? And so it made me appreciate those fellow believers that I had before. But then the one thing I realized is there was one guy on the team who happened to be injured from Atlanta who was a fellow believer. And that year, he and I, twice a week, we'd get together before practice started, and we'd pray for about 10 minutes. We'd pray for the salvation of our teammates, the salvation of our coaches. We'd pray for the Lord to be at work. And then the funny thing is I started my sophomore year. It was like the Lord, it was like the coach working through the Lord it had only recruited Christians. When we got together to pray, there was about 10 to 15 of us each time that would pray. We saw three of our teammates from the year before, one guy and two girls, come to know Jesus. And there was one girl that if you would have told me that she would have come to know Jesus, I would have said, there's no way. She was, I mean, just her, her resting posture was just mad. I mean, she just, there, I'd never seen her smile. 
But then you saw the gospel grip her heart. And over the summer, the Lord did a great work. And so it was reminding me of the power of prayer, is that the Lord is at work. To my knowledge, none of my coaches ever came to know Jesus. Um, But I did see the Lord at work in a remarkable way. And so it made me grateful for my high school years, for those that I had around me. And then again, getting to a new place, laying before the Lord. Lord, give us more believers. So as we pray, let us give thanks uh, for those numerous blessings that God has poured upon us, um, especially the blessing of fellow believers. Um, And let us also pray for other believers and pray that the Lord would bring more into our midst. And whether you have lots of Christians around you or you feel like you have none, pray for the Lord to do a great work. The second thing we see in verse 5 is a gospel prayer seeks a growing confidence. Um, Verse 5 says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Uh, Confidence, it's a funny thing. Um, It typically grows or falters from experience. Um, And it's kind of being sure of the foundation. Um, If we do go to the football ranks, the kicker's confidence goes up with what? Every made kick. And then what happens when he misses kicks? goes down. Again, it's another thing I love to, there's not many things I get to poke my Alabama friends about, but the University of Alabama has had terrible kickers. And every time their kicker comes out, it's like, no! So, very entertaining. But, they don't have much confidence in their kicker. And one of the things that's also interesting is when a guy asks a girl out and she says yes, does his confidence go up or down? It goes up. What happens when she says no? It goes down and he may never ask another girl out again in his life. So it's just, I mean, that's the way it works. Confidence is a funny thing. So in regards to the Christian, how does confidence grow? Confidence grows when we grasp the reality that our security is in heaven, that God has made it secure in Jesus Christ for us. We have these sweet words where the Christian's hope will never fail. And so what does heaven, as the Christian's hope, what does that actually accomplish for us in this life? It allows us to embrace the truth that we're dying. Um, It's something that I tell our students back in Birmingham all the time. We are terminal. Some of us may die from cancer. Some of us may die in a car accident. Some of us may die from a rare disease. But we are all dying. Either me before you or you before me. Because one of the things is we can go to the miracle accounts in Scripture. And they're incredible, aren't they? To see the ways in which people are healed. But did those individuals still die? They still died. And so we got to realize that we are terminal. And as we realize that we're dying and our hope is in heaven and not this world, one of the things that it does for us is it removes this myth of perfectionism for the Christian. And this myth of perfectionism promises a growing confidence, but it only leads to an eroding confidence. Um, Because the thing is, we want to try and live this perfect life. We want the perfect grades, the perfect school, the perfect one-day wife or husband, the perfect job. We always want perfect, perfect, perfect. And there's part of that that's good because we realize that we need something perfect. But again, we look to this world for perfection instead of to the God who has given us perfection and to our hope that is secure. And I can remember years ago, again, there's so many great resources, but there's a website called the Gospel Coalition. And on the Gospel Coalition, there's some really good articles And this was an article from years ago talking about what had happened to some of these individuals who had bought into this myth of perfectionism. It says she was only 26 years old. 
She was a Christian working in a church. After college, she had served for a year on the mission field. I didn't know her well, but I liked her a lot. She was a strong witness for Christ, and she was an articulate spokesperson for Christianity. This morning, I got the message that she had taken her life. I was absolutely devastated. I didn't understand. As if that weren't enough, shortly after hearing about her suicide, I got a call from a man who listens to my radio broadcast. He said, I haven't told anybody in the world what I'm going to tell you. I've decided to leave my wife. And I told God that if I get through to you, I would do whatever you told me. I asked him what prompted him to decide to leave her. And listen to this. He told me, I became a Christian at 14. And all my life, I've been seeking to live up to the expectations of others. I work full-time in ministry. I teach the Bible. Everyone thinks I'm the model Christian. I'm just tired of it. I've decided to do something for myself for a change. And then a different story. He says, let me share a letter with you that I received a couple weeks ago. Please pray for me. As I'm on the edge, a total failure as a Christian. I failed as a husband, as a father. God has probably given up on me. I feel so very alone and abandoned. It's a horrible feeling that words alone cannot describe. Please don't judge me. Pray for me. At first, these three instances didn't seem related. They were just about individuals for whom I prayed. But in the silence of my prayer, it had dawned on me that they all had the same problem. They had created a false standard of perfection or accepted someone else's standard and concluded they couldn't live up to it. Most Christians should say they should try harder. The problem is that all three already had and were at the end of themselves. And still others would tell them, have faith. And yet they discovered that faith needed, they needed couldn't be turned on and off like a faucet perfectionism, or another way we can look at it, performanceism, is a horrible disease. It comes from the pit of hell, smelling like rotting flesh. Someone convinced these people that they were called to measure up to an unattainable standard. They couldn't do it. And each in his or her own way simply quit trying. Nobody told them that Jesus was perfect for them. And because of that, they didn't have to be perfect for themselves. They didn't understand that if Jesus makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Christian, please remember that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that right there is the message of Colossians. Because Jesus was strong for you, you're free to be weak. Because Jesus won for you, you're free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, you're free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you're free to be ordinary. That to me is so comforting in the Christian life now. Because so much around us is telling us we have to make much of ourselves. We need to be the center of attention. Whether it's crazy YouTube videos, whether it's social media, is we need to bring attention to, to me, 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 me. And it leads us, for these three individuals, down that road of performanceism, perfectionism, getting us attention. And then where I love right here, he says, because Jesus succeeded for you, you're free to fail. Failure's Okay. Uh, there are a lot of parents out there who love their kids. One of the things that parents today have done a very poor job of a lot of times is they don't let their kids fail. Uh, you know, there's been a term called snow plowing parents. Parents who just want to remove every obstacle from their children's way. We need to fail because it's in failure that we realize we're not perfect. It's in failure that we realize we need Jesus. So when you fail, the world's not over. 
the Lord is at work. Don't be discouraged. And the last thing he says, he says, preaching the gospel is the only thing that helps take our eyes off ourselves and how we're doing. He says, Jesus fulfilled all of God's perfect conditions so that our relationship to God could be perfectly unconditional. And it's highlighting that our confidence has to be rooted in something outside this physical world. Because the only way that confidence grows is when it's rooted in Jesus Christ, who has made our hope secure. Because if I'm hoping in the perfect body, my body will fail me. Uh, If I'm hoping in the perfect grades, it will fail me. If I'm hoping for the perfect kids one day, they will fail me. If I'm hoping to get into the perfect college or grad school, it will fail me. If I'm hoping for the perfect job, it will fail me. Because perfection is found in Jesus Christ alone. So if our hope is in heaven, we rest knowing we can't obtain heaven by our perfect living. And it reminds us that earth was never intended to be our permanent home as it is now. So the Christian praises God that their hope never fails and prays that we live with eyes fixed on heaven and not this world as he grows our confidence. The third thing we see is that a gospel prayer bears fruit and grows. Verses 5 through 8, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It's the word that should stir our hearts. When we hear gospel, that should excite us. It should give the Christian great emotions, great joy. And it should give far more emotion than when you have the different colleges that say, whether it is Roll Tide, War Eagle, whatever that saying may be. But when those sayings are said in a stadium, people just jump up. And the thing I've realized living in Alabama, people just walk down the street and say, Roll Tide. And then someone gets excited and says, Roll Tide back. I mean, it's one of those things. I didn't grow up with that. And then you have other things that may get us excited. We may be excited about Christmas morning as we're thinking, what lies underneath the Christmas tree? Or we may be thinking about, hey, I can't wait to watch this show that's about to be released on Netflix. Or I can't wait until this movie's released. And we can go back and remember that excitement. The word gospel should stir even more excitement in the Christian's life. When we hear that word, because it does so much more to our soul. We're reminded that the God who saved this wretch of a man or a woman by his grace is that good. And the gospel, what it does is it changes our lives, it changes communities, and the gospel changes the world. Because if we go back and we look at Genesis 12 and the promise God made to Abraham, how the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what do we have? We have a backdrop of nearly 4,000 years since God made that promise to Abraham. And have we seen the gospel go forth from there? Oh, man, have we ever. And that's the thing. The gospel changes the world. So it's gospel heard, gospel applied, and the gospel effect takes its place in the communities and around the world. So as we pray for the gospel to be heard in our communities and around the world, we pray that it would be applied in our communities, not just heard, so we can see much fruit. The fourth thing, the gospel prayer wants our affections for God to outpace our affections for the world. 
Um, Verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We know a lot about that which we love. Um, You know, whether it is we have a favorite musician or a favorite band, don't you think we're probably going to know most of their songs? Don't you think we're probably going to know some of their tour dates, especially if they come close to our city? If there are certain movies or TV series that we like, aren't we going to set aside the time to watch those? And so, and then aren't we even going to probably part with some of our resources to go to that movie, to go to, to watch that show, to go to that concert? And one of the things for me, again, I have another buddy that's in youth ministry. He went to the University of Wake Forest. Wake Forest does not have much of a football team. He's from Birmingham. He can, with the Alabama football team, he can go three deep at every position, and he can tell you how good Alabama's going to be that year, and he's almost always right. He knows all the players Alabama's recruiting. He says whether they're worth it or not. Um, We call those people in the college football world nerds. Um, They know far more about it than they should. But why does he know that much about it? He loves it. And the thing is, for us, those things that we love in this world, do we love God? Do our affections for God outpace what we love in this world? Because if we love God naturally, we're going to love his word. Naturally, we're going to love to be in prayer and studying about him. We're going to want to increase our knowledge about him. And one of the things that we're blessed with today is we have more access in terms of knowledge of God than any other generation that's lived before us. Um, you would have, I mean, even just a hundred years ago, but if you go back a couple hundred years ago, if people thought that you could have 30 copies of the Bible in your house and then throw that, you could have it in your pocket with you at all times, and then you could even have the word of God read to you, they wouldn't have a category for that. And then not only do we have the word of God with us at all times, but we have so many resources we can listen. RYM has podcasts geared towards students. You have, like I was talking about earlier, the Gospel Coalition. There's so many things that are geared towards that can help us grow in our knowledge of God. Like I said, the book table as well. I mean, just, the list goes on and on and on. So some people may say, oh, all this technology. Yes, it has its downfall, but it also has given us so many opportunities to know more about God. So let us pray that our affections for God would outpace our affections for this world. The fifth thing, a gospel prayer walks in a worthy manner. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Um, A growing knowledge of God is going to lead to walking in a worthy manner. You can see how this prayer is building. The gospel affects the heart. The heart searches to know God more intimately. And now the heart knows him more intimately. And we begin to walk in a manner that is worthy. It goes from gospel heard to gospel applied. And the natural byproduct of the gospel being applied means, as one pastor put it, we're no longer sitting in the kiddie pool sucking on a bottle. Um, Because if we go back to your hometown and we see you sitting in the kiddie pool and you've got the little floaties on your arms and you're sucking on a bottle, we're going to say something's not right. Something's not good. We need to get him or her examined. And the thing is, in the Christian life, we should be growing in our knowledge of God. And that knowledge is going to lead to a different way of living. This is called, as we've said, sanctification, where God is making us more like him over time. So as we mature, it may look like this, where we move from occasional church attendance 
to more regular church attendance. It may mean we rarely prayed before to now where we are praying more. We're reading scripture, reading other books pertaining to the things of God. We are living lives that bring glory to God and are a blessing to those around us. In a sense, if you've heard the phrase, all chips are in, I'm in. We're not just sitting on the sidelines anymore. It's impossible for the Christian to continue to grow in spiritual maturity. One of the things without joining the local church. If you're a Christian and not a member of a church, we've got to be involved and we've got to be plugged in, not just showing up one or two Sundays a month. So if the Christian prays that the Spirit would sanctify them over time so that they would walk in a manner worthy. The sixth thing is a gospel prayer produces a joy that leads to endurance. Verse 11 says this, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Um, Paul is going to come here and say, it's only gospel endurance that will see us through. Um, I would assume that most of us all know this life, it's not pain-free. It's one of the things I love about Scripture, love about Christianity. Christianity is not the promise of a life of ease and comfort. It's not your best life now. It's not become a Christian and you'll be rich, become a Christian, and we'll have the hottest girlfriend, we'll have the sweetest boyfriend, whatever that may be, or that illness will never come to us. Rather, it is the promise of a God who will never leave us or never forsake us in the trials of life. Because the thing is, most of us have had a bad day. Most of us have probably had a bad month, or we maybe even had a bad year. But the promise of the gospel is that he will enable his people to endure with patience and joy through the many seasons of life. So the Christian prays for endurance because it's endurance that produces a sustainable joy. The seventh thing that we see is a gospel prayer removes pride. Verse 12 says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. The Christian, as a Christian, we don't walk with a swagger. An arrogant Christian should never exist. Because it's the work of Christ on our behalf. And Ephesians 2 reminds us of this where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what we get is the Christian gets to approach the throne boldly. It's good. It's good for us to see how heinous our sin is and want to puke, but then be overwhelmed as we're met by the grace of God that overcomes all our heinous sin. And it removes our pride because when we realize our goodness doesn't qualify us to come to the throne of God boldly, it reminds us God is at work. God is doing something far bigger than me. And we never have to think as believers, hey, I need to get my life in order before I pray. I need to clean this up a little bit before I pray. No, we come just as we are before the throne of grace. So the believer can approach the throne of grace anytime because of God's work. So the Christian is praying for a heart that is broken by their sin, but overwhelmed by a relentless God who strips away our pride. The eighth and final thing that we see in this is the gospel prayer rejoices that God has made all things new. Um, in a sense, we can also say curse, the sin's curse has lost its grip on the redeemed soul. Verses 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. Uh, The transformation. Paul continues with this theme of praising God for what God has done. And here he praises him for the transformation that God has done in his people. And he rejoices that this is not a faith that just says try harder. Because the thing is, if you know anything about the life of Paul, and you know who he once was and who he became, it's a complete transformation. Um, There's pretty much just two channels on cable that I watch. ESPN and the second one, guys may make fun of me, but HGTV. Love HGTV. Love watching all of those shows. And one of the things that I love is I love that before and after. I mean, you see homes that like, you pull up and they're like, I'm not living there. That ain't happening. But then what happens when they get done with the house? I'm ready to move in right now. Bring me there. And the thing is, it's the transformation. And there's something within all of us that loves this transformation. And it can be sometimes there were shows like The Biggest Loser. And you see that weight loss. Here's what they look like before. Here's what they look like after. Transformation is at the heart of the gospel. And I love it when you see individuals who once were living like this. And now they're living like this. And it's entirely because of the gospel. And so to the unbeliever, you may be curious to know more about this God who takes you from darkness to life. And if you're one of those who's struggling to believe or wants to know this God, pray that God would ignite your heart and that you would never be the same. And there are some who may say they're Christians, but the transformation just has never taken place. And a lot of times these are individuals who hey, I just don't want to go to hell but life has never gone from darkness to light. Pray for the transformation. Pray for God to truly change your heart. And as we said, Paul loves the transformation. It's one of the greatest joys in the Christian life to see God at work in that way. And this gospel prayer, if we pray this gospel prayer as mentioned above, we're going to nourish our souls as we see remarkable change in our lives, the lives around us, and the lives we never encounter because that's how big our God is. We get to play a role in seeing him change lives that we never touch or never know. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. Lord, we pray that your word would continue to work its way deep into our hearts. And Father, pray that it would cause us to bend the knee. Father, that we would, we would come before your throne boldly, not because of anything we've done, not because of our glowing resumes, but entirely because of what you have done for us. Lord God, give us a great confidence, not arrogance, that Lord, that you are at work. And Lord God, we pray that the gospel would be applied in our lives so that we would see it applied in the communities around us and see a world that changes. Heavenly Father, get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.